Glad you're here this morning. We're continuing our journey through Paul's letters to Timothy. We're in that second letter now, and this, as you recall, is the, probably the last words that Paul would ever put to pen. And while that doesn't make it more inspired or more valuable necessarily than anything else he's written, it does give it a certain sort of, of weight. And, and that context, that understanding that these things that matter so much in these waning moments of life, you know, as Paul knows that he's approaching the end, he's approaching that time where he's going to see God face to face, and everything that he has believed and trusted in is going to be validated. His confidence in Christ, his willingness to stand firm is going to be vindicated before his great king. And he wants Timothy to live the same sort of life to, to finish well. And that sort of life has to be shaped by, by the scriptures. How does God's word shape us? form us into the people that God wants us to be. And that's why I titled this series, A Biblically Shaped Life. Now, in, in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, we have three motifs, three metaphors for the Christian life. And the beauty of these is their universality, I guess. All of us, to some degree, are going to have some concept of the principles behind them. They make sense to us. We don't have to be a soldier to understand what he meant by soldiering. We don't have to be an athlete to understand what he meant with his comparisons to sport and athletics. And, and we don't have to be a farmer to understand the concepts behind farming. But because I recognized those who served us in military and those who were athletes, so I kind of did that one tongue-in-cheek, I also want to recognize the farmers among us. If you are a farmer now or once, now or retired, will you stand for a moment? Because honestly, we want to appreciate you because thank you for feeding us and taking care of us. Will our farmers in the, in the room stand? Now let me give you a few qualifiers up front. I don't know a whole lot about farming, to be honest with you. And so I don't want you to judge the sermon by my lack of, of modern farming expertise. I mean, the world of farming, I think, has changed a great deal since the biblical times. The amount of, of scientific knowledge and technology that's required, the, the amount of business acumen and, and strategy that's required, but I think the principles make, make sense. Now, my, my family, when I say my family, I mean my forebears, those who came to the U.S., as I look back and search back my own roots and things, almost all of them settled in roughly the same place, upstate South Carolina. In rural South Carolina, the vast majority of them were farmers. Now, my experience with farming, again, is not really firsthand. I grew up in the city. But my grandfather, who was a retired chicken farmer, um, in his latter days, he kept cows. And he had steer. That's what he liked. He liked to keep his steer and take care of them. And I guess my one touch with farming, and it was enough for me, was when he invited uh, my brother and I, my older brother, to come help him out for the weekend. Hey, do you guys want to come help me out for the weekend? And I like tractors, and I like fishing, and I like the cows pretty good. So I said, sure, yeah, we'll do it. We were, we were young. I was a little bit younger. He was an older teenager. And we went to uh, my grandfather's farm for the weekend for what I now dub as barbed wire camp. <laughs> and all weekend long, all we did was string barbed wire, barbed wire uh, between poles and and repaired his fences all around. And that was pretty much enough for me to know I wanted to do something else with my life. But for those of you who are farmers, you know, I, I applaud you. But what we see in this text today reminds us of some principles that I think are universal. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6 says, It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. 
Now, you could make anything of that statement if you wrenched it from its context. You could teach all sorts of principles and ideas about that, I guess. But the context is from a wider statement that Paul is making to Timothy that applies not just to him as a young Christian leader, a young elder pastor in his church, but to every Christian who wants to be faithful to make disciples, the very things that we sing about today. So this universal call, this every Christian call to discipleship and disciple-making is what's in view. So let's back up just a little bit, and let's start at the beginning again of chapter 2. He says to Timothy, you then, my child. That's not a condescending statement, remember? That's a, that's a spiritually paternalistic statement. Because I've been so instrumental in God's work in your life, I saw you come to faith. And I take it as my responsibility to help grow you up in the faith. My love for you is expressed in these words, my child. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That, by the way, is how we all know that this passage was not just for Timothy, but the principles in this passage is for all of us. Timothy, what I've done in your life, what you've seen and heard from me, I want you in turn to do for others. And those in turn will do it to others. And this is my plan. This is my exponential plan of disciple making. People making disciples, disciples making disciples. And then he gives these three motifs of disciple making. Verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Verse 5, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And for our use today, verse 6, it's a hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. So again, consider these concepts. First is the focused devotion of a good soldier. A soldier who lacks focus, who loses a sense of purpose, who begins to be distracted by all the other things around him other than doing what he's commanded to do, following the orders of his superior, is incredibly vulnerable. He says, don't lose your devotion and your focus. And what about the faithful dedication of a winning athlete? To get up when others are sleeping, to run when it's too cold or too hot, to push forward when others want to stop, and to do it with integrity all the way through that you finish well, that you can receive a reward because what you did, you did with integrity. And finally, the persevering diligence of a hardworking farmer, day in, day out, season in, season out, to know that this requires a constancy, a commitment that doesn't end until the harvest comes. I love this quote by C.K. Barrett. He said, Beyond warfare is victory. Beyond the athlete's effort is the prize. And beyond agricultural labor is the crop. And that's our encouragement today. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be challenged today, and rightly so. I pray that we would we'd be convicted where sin exists, and rightly so. And Father, not just feeling bad. Father, not just feeling regret or remorse or what could have been or should have been or missed opportunities and wasted time, but Father, in repentance, we will find restoration. And Lord, we find the, the sense of healing from you that says, now begin again. Start today. Do what is in front of you now, the next right thing. Father, may we repent and move forward. But Father, may we also all find encouragement. For those who are discouraged and wonder, is this worth it? Is anything good going to come of this? 
Why are things happening as they are? Why is nothing happening like I pray for? Whatever it may be, Father, I pray that we would be encouraged to push on, to push on to victory, to push on to the prize, to push on to the harvest. I pray this for your glory, but Lord, for our good, for those who are intertwined. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I want to simply give you four implications today that I think are found in this metaphor of the hardworking farmer. I'm not saying these are all the implications. I think these are faithful to the text, but also faithful to the wider body of Scripture. We understand this concept. Four implications. The first one is this. There's no room for laziness in the Christian life. There's no room for laziness here. Hard work is the biblical norm. It's the biblically expected, acceptable normal for the Christian life. I mean, this is a simple word study, but you might find it a little bit enlightening or, or convicting. Look at all the words in Scripture that deal with labor, hard work. All the different times that we see the Scriptures focusing on this. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 4 gives us a baseline principle of labor. The slugger does not plow in the autumn. He'll seek at a harvest and have nothing. There's a principle there that there's sowing and then there's reaping. And the one who doesn't work, the one who doesn't labor, has nothing to harvest. And again, I'm not trying to create regret or remorse in you, but the challenge to what will you do with what you have left? Resources, time, opportunity. One day I, I fear that we may look back and wish we had sown different seed or better seed or good seed at all. You see, from the very beginning, God created us to labor. I think sometimes we have this false sense that work, hard work, labor, is a result of the curse. But it actually was part of creation from the very beginning, foundational to whom God made us to be. Genesis 1.28, we're commanded to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, have dominion. You work this that I have given you. You take responsibility for it, authority over it, control in it, subdue it, have dominion in it. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, again, a whole chapter before the fall of Genesis chapter 3, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to do what there? To work it and to keep it. Not simply to enjoy it, not to luxuriate in it, not to chill and relax in it. Work this. This is worthwhile. I'm giving you something good. Tend to it. Keep it. Work is not the product of sin. Work is part of God's good design for his humanity. We flourish in hard work. We wither in laziness. Laboring to be faithful and grow in godliness is no different than laboring at work, on the farm, in the job. Laboring to be godly is part of our responsibility too. When was the last time you thought of your spiritual life and growth as hard work, as labor? Something I'm willing to work for. You think about the things that you value the most that you're willing to work hard at. Things you became good at, proficient at. Things you wanted to be skilled at, have success at. You were willing to work at. I can remember we had a, a gentleman in my church who was a, a retired professional golfer. He played on the Senior Open and um, actually played in the British Open, made the PGA Tour for a season. And he took me one day and said, I'm, I'm going I'm to show you how to play. So you like golf? And I said, no, not really. Never played. So I'm going to show you. I'm going to teach you. So cool. And so we went out and we spent the afternoon, you know, hitting balls and stuff at the driving range. And we had an agreed assessment when the time was over. This is probably not for you. 
This is probably not for you. Now, he said this. He said, now, if you want to get better at this, I'm not saying you're ever going to be good at it. I, I really think you're not. I'll just be honest with you. I, I think it's beyond you. But if you want to get better at it, here's what we can do. And you can work at it. And we can get together. But you're not going to do this playing once every month or two months or three months. We're going to have to do this a lot. We're going to have to get together often and do this. And I decided, you know what? No, I don't want to do that. <laughs> this wasn't that interesting to me. But those things that we care about, now those things we'll work at, but your Christian life ought to be your spiritual life, your, your relationship with the Lord, your own sanctification. That ought to be worth the hardest work you're willing to put in. When I don't feel like getting up early to spend time with the Lord, you get up, just like you would for your job, but even more so. When I don't feel like praying, I know in my own spirit that's when I need to pray the most. When I don't feel like reading, that's when I need to dig in the most. Or when I feel like this is dry and I'm in sort of the spiritual barren land, I don't understand these texts, that's when I need to work at it the most. Work at this, to, to labor over this. The expectation is that we're going to keep going. We're going to keep pushing. We're going to keep pressing. Consider some of the things that Paul also wrote about labor in other places. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. He says, By the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. I want you to consider that verse just for a moment. By the grace of God I am what I am. His grace was not in vain for me. I worked harder than any of them, but it was God's grace. I think sometimes we think God's grace and our work are oppositional or even contradictory things. Like it's either grace or it's effort. It's grace or it's work. But here's what Paul said, in my life, in my spiritual life, my desire to know Christ, to be like Christ, to make Christ known, I work harder than anyone. And what do I discover in my hard work? What do I discover in my labor? What do I discover in giving my best? God's grace meets me there. God's grace keeps me going. God's grace takes me deeper. God's grace sustains me and motivates me. How many of you have been told at some point in your life, <clears throat> when whatever it is you're going through, maybe it's raising children, maybe it's learning a new job or task, but you're told something like this, hey, hang in there, it gets easier. Hang in there, it gets easier. Now, as a parent of four, which is, I know I seem a little disconnected from that world now as a happy-go-lucky empty nester, but at one time having four all between the ages of zero and five, I can remember people telling me, hang in there. Hey, it gets easier. I'm not sure when because it hasn't yet, but, <laughs> but what if it doesn't? What if it doesn't get easier? What if managing that sickness or that disease or that disability doesn't get easier? What if the challenge of parenting doesn't get easier? What if the struggles at work or just in life don't, don't get easier? What do we do then? We keep pressing, we keep working, and we know this principle, God's grace is ever-present for those who trust in Him. And so what Paul told Timothy is this at the beginning. Remember this? He said, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So as the soldier stays devoted to the task, focused, determined, he meets God's grace. When the athlete gets up and trains and works hard and wants to compete and doesn't 
cut corners and doesn't cheat the rules and does what's right, even if no one else is doing it, what does he find? Grace. And the farmer who keeps working hard day in, day out, what does he discover? Grace. Paul wasn't the first to see Christian ministry, the Christian life as labor. Jesus talked about a plentiful harvest and few laborers. He told his disciples to pray this way, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The things that we sang about today, this task that's unfinished, as James prayed today, there's a reminder there, not so subtle, that if we're going to do this, it's going to take work. That means we might have to develop skills we don't have. It might mean that we're going to have to get coaching from people who know how to do this better than we. It might mean that we're going to need others to come alongside us to encourage us and push us. And it might simply mean doing things we don't feel like doing because we're willing to work hard at the task. Ultimately, I would say laziness is sinfulness. And that applies at your job. That applies in your home with your family. That applies to you as a Christian laboring to become more like Christ and to make Christ known. Laziness is sinfulness. If you want to do a whole book study that's a, essentially a treatise of the effects of laziness, read 1 Thessalonians. And Paul comes in hard on the Thessalonians. and He tells them, admonish the idol, 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Admonish them. Correct them. Bring order to their lives. In fact, he says to the Thessalonians, those who won't work shouldn't eat. Labor, life is about work, and in work we find God's grace. Let me move on. Number two, a second insight, I think, from the metaphor of farming and laboring. Not all of the Christian life is exciting or applauded. Much of it is mundane and routine. Not everything that God calls you to do is going to be exciting. Not everything that God has gifted you to do is going to receive the applause of men. Not everything that's required of us to do as Christians is going to be what we might say satisfying or fulfilling. Man, I love doing that. Some of it's just routine and mundane. I, I think about, again, maybe this is sort of an idealistic notion, but the pride of being a, a soldier. And you've got the uniform and, and you've got the respect. And certainly at times and places there's a thrill and there's an excitement, a camaraderie. Or what about the athlete? Man, you've got people that are cheering for you. You've got people that know your name. You've got people that want to see you succeed. You've got a team you don't want to let down. You've got the thrill of this competition. But what about the, the solitary farmer? There's no one there at 5 in the morning before the sun comes up saying, Yeah, man, you go get it. Milk those cows. Milk those. No one's doing that. No one's cheering or noticing. There's no prize to be won at the end. You just get up and you do it. And you do the same thing today that you did yesterday. And you know what? You'll do the same thing tomorrow. And it won't matter if it's rainy or if it's hot or if it's cold or if it's windy. It won't matter. You'll do the same thing again and again. Jesus said in Mark chapter 4, verse 26 and 27, he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Now listen to this principle of farming. Now I know the, the parable is about the kingdom, but the principle that he uses to teach the parable is farming. He says it's like a man would scatter seed on the ground. What does that look like? He sleeps and he rises night and day. He seeds, sprouts, and grows. He knows not how. It's a picture of farming. I get up and I do this. I prepare the soil. I plant the seed. I water the seed, and I do it again and again, and I entrust the results to God. 
He's not saying that the farmer is ignorant. Yeah, we have some scientific understanding of what happens in germination of a seed and the sprouting, all those things. But the point is this. God is sovereign over these things. But my role is faithfulness, obedience, constancy. Let, let me just say this just for a moment. I hope the point will be well taken by you. I'm afraid far too many Christians are looking for an experience. They're looking for an immediate transformation. They're looking for some sort of dynamic encounter. We're almost like spiritual thrill seekers. and We'll go from place to place, conference to conference, event to event, and I see this sort of hype all the time, a life-changing weekend. This six-week course will change your life. Come to this meeting, this profound encounter of Holy Spirit weekend, whatever it may be. And I'm not saying that God can't use an event or a moment, or a course, or a study to be the catalyst for the beginning of real life change. It might be the launch point. It might incentivize. It might light the spark. But real life change happens slowly, over time, with consistency of doing what's right to do right now, doing what's the right thing to do at this moment, what's next in front of me. This is the role of spiritual growth. Will I be faithful right now? Not will I do this someday. Will I be obedient to what I know what I'm supposed to do right now in this moment, not later? Will I pursue him today? Will I work at it today? And sometimes it's the simple mundane things. Like, people ask me a question sometimes. In fact, Dan is teaching a course right now in our open classes on Wednesday nights, How to Grow. How to Grow. And I promise you, Dan would concur that it's the systematic, consistent routine wherein God shapes me over time. Being faithful to a body of believers called a church, sitting under biblical preaching, submitting myself to the Word daily, being in prayer, being accountable to other people, through these things, facing difficulties and hardships and allowing God to shape me, God makes me over time and how he wants me to be. And there are no shortcuts. Remember Paul told Timothy in the book we studied last, chapter 4, verse 7? He told Timothy, he said, train yourself to be godly. Now, obviously, the idea of training fits better with the metaphor of athletics and sport, like the winning athlete. But the principle is the same. You won't become a good athlete by wanting to be one really badly. He didn't say, Timothy, try to be godly. He said, train yourself for it. You don't show up in that moment hoping that you can do it. You don't go for the harvest when you've not sown the seed. He says, train yourself for it. In the book, The Practice of Godliness, Jerry Bridges writes this. He says, the first irreducible minimum of training is commitment. No one makes it to the level of Olympic or even national competition without a commitment to pay the price of rigorous daily training. And similarly, no one ever becomes godly without a commitment to pay the price of the daily spiritual training God has designed for our growth in godliness. So this commitment to the daily, to the routine, even the seemingly mundane, this is how God shapes us. Will I get up early? Will I spend time with the Lord? Will I prioritize time with Him before I prioritize any other thing? Will I read my Bible? Will I have the conversation I've been putting off? Will I do the thing that God has put in front of me right now? Remember 2 Corinthians 4.16 says this, that we are being renewed 
day by day. You know, we, in that context, Paul is talking about just the struggle of the Christian life and the fact that in reality we're dying day by day. The externals say that we're getting weaker and sicker and older, but we're being renewed day by day. Why the need to be renewed day by day? In a sermon by John Piper, I love the statement he made. He says it's because hope fades, encouragement wanes, and your bucket leaks. How many of you know that to be true? Hope fades, encouragement wanes, and your bucket leaks. So what do you need from God? The grace that He gives day by day. He wants us to visit with Him. He wants us to spend time with Him. He wants us to engage with Him and hear from Him through His Word, not through something mystical. I think God said to me, I heard the voice of God speak to me. No, I read this in His Word, and He told me day by day, grace for every day. And here's the principle I believe that Paul was telling Timothy. Timothy, be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus while you work, while you do what God has given you to do. You don't find that grace in laziness. You find that grace in obedience. Number three, many of your most important moments as a Christian, as a person, as a human, many of your most important moments are going to happen when you are alone or unseen. Again, it's like that, that farmer who, who gets up and just does his job, does his task. He's either up early tending to something or he's staying out late or he's dealing with a detail that someone else has missed or no one else would pay attention to, but he knows it's necessary to get the job done. And he can't put this off and expect a good result. But the most important aspects of your Christian life are often also alone or unseen. Because most of the time, we're not under the oversight or purview or in front of an audience. Most of the time, there aren't people there seeing what we're doing and if we're keeping the rules. Most of the time, there aren't people there cheering us on. Most of the time, there aren't comrades in arms with us, holding us up in battle and encouraging us to not quit. A large part of our life, in fact, some of the parts that shape us the most into the kind of people we're going to be, Developing the kind of character that God wants us to have or, in the negative, destroying us at the core are those things that happen when we're by ourselves. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 4, he said that your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, hold up. I know that's grossly out of context. Wait, I thought he was talking about prayer. He is. Pray in secret. Your father who sees in secret will, re will reward you. But it also reminds us of this little point, too. Our father sees in secret. The one who knows what we have need of, the one who knows how we pray when it's really just me and him, not me and him and all of you. But our Father sees in secret, and there's nothing hidden from him. God sees. Most of our lives are not lived out in the open. A great portion is private and personal when no one sees. These critical moments, in those critical moments, will you do what you're supposed to do? In those critical moments, will you not be distracted by all the tugs and pulls of this world? Will you keep your diligent focus like that soldier? In those critical moments where you're running that race, will you run according to the rules? Several years ago, some of us um, from Calvary, we did one of those uh, long-distance team events called Ragnar Relays, where you run through the night and 100-something miles together, and everybody runs their own leg. And 
theoretically, when someone's running, particularly at night, others can be resting or sleeping or eating or, or whatever. And I can remember one of the legs I drew was, I don't know, it was middle of the night, it was late. And over time, though there are numbers of teams running, you do get kind of spread out over the course. And I can remember running out there, and I, I'm on this road somewhere near Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and I'm the only person out there. Now, I'd already um, done bad by my team because I had the very first leg of the relay, and I got lost in downtown Chattanooga and had to be picked up in another team's van. That's not my fault. It was bad signage. I was trying to keep the rules and receive the prize, but I did not. But here I'm just running out there by myself. And I thought, I guess it's theoretically possible to cheat out here. If I'd had a GPS or something, I guess I could have run through someone's yard or through a neighborhood or through a farm. But I thought, what an analogy. For all those times you're just running and no one sees but God, that's when your character is being forged. Because some of us have become pretty adept at looking good for the crowd. Some of us have become pretty adept at performing before an audience. Some of us are pretty good at seeming like a, a good teammate or a good member of the platoon. You know, we'll work right with you, strong, gifted, encouraging, while our soul withers and dies because of what happens when we're by ourselves. Will you be faithful in those moments? Will you be consistent in those moments? Will you pursue godliness in those moments? And finally, the principle that's most apparent in the text is this. Those who work hard will be first in line for the reward. And at that moment, that hard work will surely be worth it. This is one of those facts by faith that we have to receive. Facts by faith. The hard work we put in now for the sake of godliness and for the sake of others, that they too might know Christ, see Christ in me, that I might be a, a faithful witness before my sons and daughters, that I might be a faithful spouse, that I might be a faithful soldier in the army of God, that I might do these things well. The hard work will be worth it, and we have to believe that. We have to believe it without feeling it. We have to believe it without seeing it. We have to believe it without being able to touch it or apprehend it right now and still know that it's true, that there's nothing that we would do or, as Paul, I mean, I'm sorry, as Jesus told his disciples, there's nothing that you would surrender or sacrifice for my sake in the kingdom that will not be repaid to you. This work will be worth it. We have to believe that doing the right thing and honoring God and being faithful to him might be costly in this life, might be relationally costly, you may have people who just don't want to be around you anymore because you're just too whatever. Throw whatever adjective you like. You're too radical. You're too extreme. You're too whatever. It might cost you in business. It might cost you opportunities. It might cost you politically. It might cost you freedom. But will you be faithful and know that it's worth it? Don't be deceived. Galatians 6, 7 tells us. Why would a passage of Scripture begin with an admonition, don't be deceived? Because we're deceived. Because this is where we, we fool ourselves. This is where we believe lies. Don't be deceived about this. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. There is a law of sowing and reaping, and this is not karma. This is not to say the same thing as this world exists in some sort of karmic fashion. It's a principle that if you sow the right seeds, and you trust God for the results, there will be a harvest of that. And if you sow that which is wrong, there will be a harvest of that. Be sure sins will find you out. Don't be deceived. Whatever one sows, he'll also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh, you know what that means? I do what I want to do. I do whatever I feel like doing. I do what makes me happy. I do what gives me pleasure. 
I let me decide. The things that I feel, the things that I want, the things that I am attracted to, that drives me. If I live life that way, I will from the flesh reap corruption. And that corruption doesn't just mean things are going to go bad in some way. That's destruction and death. But the one who sows to the Spirit, you know what that means? God, what do you want me to do? As I walk faithfully with you, as the Spirit guides and directs my life, as the evidence of God shows up in my life that we would call the fruit of the Spirit that we see in Galatians, as those things mark me, as I live that way, what's going to happen? I'll reap eternal life. That doesn't mean that if I live in a certain way or work hard enough, I get to go to heaven. It means that eternal life is happening in me already, this life-giving life. Let us not grow weary of this. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Maybe that's a good verse for a farmer. Let us not grow, whoops, did I just go out? There we go. Let us not grow weary in well-doing. That moment you don't, that morning you don't want to get up, that week when you're sitting there looking at the books and it just doesn't add up, let us not grow weary of doing good in due season we will reap if we don't give up. Those who work hard are first in line for the reward. So I leave you with these thoughts, and they apply not just to farming, but to parenting, to marriage, to being a son or daughter under your parents, to being a student, to being a business owner or an employee, to being a person who wants to live a life that honors God. A farmer's greatest threat, I would say, is discouragement. Just a discouragement of all, that I'm not seeing results, that the harvest is not coming in like I'd hoped. That the situations outside of my control took away what I had so invested myself in. You know, when it didn't rain for a long time like I thought it would, or it rained far too much, or it got cold too soon, or stayed hot too long. All these factors outside of their control. And it would be easy to say, I'm not doing this anymore. I deserve better than this. I, I did all these things, and look what's happened. And we do that same equation in our own minds. I deserve better than this, God. God, haven't I been? Haven't I been faithful? Haven't I done this? Haven't I given? Haven't I participated? Didn't I go on the mission trip? Didn't I do all these things? And we become this proverbial older brother in the prodigal son story, thinking that life owes us something, or worse yet, that God owes us something? When he's given us everything? When you're not seeing results, your greatest threat is discouragement. But your best defense, just like the farmer, is faith. It's faith. Faith is not some ethereal concept. It's not some wobbly principle that you can't really get your hands around or stand on. Faith is believing something to be true to the degree that I will act on it. And I think about the analogy of farming. I just have to trust God to do the things that only God can do. I saw this study from the University of Iowa regarding agriculture and how much it takes, uh, I can't even remember the specifics of it now, but to produce a certain amount of crop per each acre of land. And when you figure in the amount of water and the amount of oxygen and all the different chemical components, all these different things, their assessment at the end was this. About 5 to 10% of the success of every farm rests on the farmer. 95, 90 to 95% is outside of his hands. Listen, you can be faithful and do all these things, but you have to trust God and keep doing what you're supposed to do. And how do I know that I have faith? Because I keep working. I keep working. That's what James said. James said this, I'll show you my faith 
by my works. I'll show you what I believe about God. I'll show you what I believe about his promises. I'll show you what I believe about our relationship. I'll show you by working because I'm going to keep at it. I'm going to trust him nonetheless. I'm going to do the right thing no matter the consequences, good or bad. I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to be faithful to him. I'm going to walk by his spirit. I'm going to do what's best by faith. Farmer's best defense is faith. And your highest aim, just like the farmer, ought to be this, to enjoy the harvest. Why does the farmer plant? Why does he labor? For the harvest. For the harvest. You and I ought to have a sense of that. Maybe some of you might have this feeling that you feel a little guilty maybe for, I don't know, it doesn't seem quite right that I should be living the Christian life for some sort of reward. And yet the Bible speaks of reward again and again, and Jesus speaks of reward so often. We ought to have a sense of the promise of God that's going to give us something at the end. Read Paul's words and his letters and epistles about his confident hope in what God was going to yet do for him one day. If he would remain faithful, live for that reward. God has promised it. That's your encouragement today. God has promised this reward, so stick with it. Stay at it. Be diligent like that farmer. You will receive the reward. I want to leave you with this conclusion, much like the Apostle Paul did. I think it's a pretty good skill here implied. I love the way he says this. He says, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Think over what I say. Now, as a, as a preacher, I hope you do that all the time anyway. I hope you do that on Sundays as you're driving home. I hope you do that when you're you know, making trips back to the buffet, the Golden Corral. Think over what I said. What did he think about what I said? I want you to be thinking about this. And the reason he says, think over what I say is personal application. Think over this. I want you to think it over and how this applies to you and how the scripture speaks to you. A soldier, an athlete, a farmer. Easily understandable concepts. As a soldier in God's army, are you willing to endure hardship and even deny yourself? If it means being faithful to him, if it means pleasing Jesus, are you, are you willing to endure hardship? Are you willing to, to experience pushback to be faithful? Are you willing to engage opposition to be faithful? Or are, are you willing to be, I mean, let's make it simple. Are you willing not to have everyone like you or agree with you? Are you willing to be called names? Are you willing to be ridiculed? Are you willing to be opposed are you willing to engage in the fight for faithfulness? Which means you might have to deny things that you want too. It's not just the external enemies that keep us from being faithful, that keep us from being useful. Sometimes it's the internal ones that I don't want to deny myself. Remember what he said? No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. These other things, because I've got a life, I've got a focus. I'm not a civilian anymore. I'm in the army of Christ, so what does that mean? Well, that means I live in a different way now with a different commander and a different purpose. Same thing for you and me. Think about that for yourself. Think about this. How does that apply to you? Am I willing to engage in the fight, to have enemies even, to be faithful to Christ? Am I willing even to engage myself, deny myself? Number two, as an athlete contending for a great prize, and it is a great prize. I mean, Paul writes about the, the beauty of this prize, the worth of this prize. Are you willing to devote yourself to right living so that you finish well? 
right living, not just in front of the crowd, not just when others see, not just on the external, but am I willing to run that course when the road is dark and long and I'm the only one out there and I think no one knows or sees? And I could cut the corner, I could cheat at any moment. I don't have to live by his rules. I don't have to walk faithfully with him. I can just jump back on the course whenever I choose. And he says, be faithful to me. An athlete's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And finally, as a farmer, as a farmer preparing for an eternal harvest, both our own lives, when we stand before God, and everything that we are and have done and has put before him, and it's refined as by fire, what will be left, what will be eaten up like wood, hay, stubble, but what will be enduring and valuable? Am I willing to work for those things, an eternal harvest? Will I consistently work hard now with commitment and faith? Those two pillars, commitment, that means every day, the commitment to be consistent, the constancy of discipline and faith that trusts that if I keep working, God's grace will meet me there. Constantly in faith for a result that I won't receive until later. That's part of the Christian life, you know. We'd like for it not to be that way. We'd like for simpler equations to take place. If I do something good today, I get a good reward today. But we don't really want that equation. We don't want immediate justice. None of us could live. None of us could survive it. But trust that what God has in store for us is better than we can imagine. Trust that the end will be worth it. That's the thing that overrides so much of this letter to Timothy. The end will be worth it. Work hard now for what God has promised later. It's the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. And you will. Think over what I say. And God will give you understanding in everything. Let's pray. Father, guide our thinking now. Father, sometimes I am easily distracted. I can be confused. I, I can distort truth based on my own opinions, my own perceptions of reality, and I can miss what you're saying. Father, give us clarity in this moment to think over these things, not just so we would understand them, but so we would do this, so that we would adjust, so that we would respond obediently, rightly, what would you have us to do now? Father, give us understanding, I pray. Give each of us understanding to what your word has said, what you're specifically saying to me, and what you would have me to do for my own good and your glory. And Lord, today, if it be your will, use this time, this moment, this message to be a catalyst for new beginnings. For a new start, to the next right act of obedience, whatever it may be, Father, may we leave here obediently, I pray. Listen, I just want you to pray for a moment. I, I'm, I'm going to speak with your head bowed. I just want to ask you to do this for the sake of yourself and the people around you just for a moment. You know, I, I said at the beginning that my aim was not just to create the sense of regret or remorse. Man, I wish I would have done that better. I wish I had poured more into my kids when they were young. I wish I had had family worship time. or um, I, I, I wish this or I wish that. I wish I had sown different seeds. 
Listen, you and I cannot undo those things. But I don't want you to underestimate the grace of God and His power to effect new beginnings and to repay us for lost years and lost time, lost effort. I want to encourage you, if you haven't, whatever it is that God is challenging you to begin, begin it today. The worst sort of irrationalization that you could do is, I haven't done it until now, it's too late, I'm not going to do it at all. What a horror that would be. What does God want you to begin doing now? By the same token, if there's something that just doesn't fit your life as a person competing for a prize, it's outside the bounds of what a Christian should be or do or live like. The worst sort of irrational thought would be, I've done this so long, it's just a part of me. What's the point of quitting now? No. Confess and repent. Be restored and start running in a way that honors Him so that you may still finish well. And for those of you who are just feeling discouraged, maybe the, maybe the picture, that motif of farming and discouragement, that hit you. But I'm trying, but it's not happening. To the parent of the prodigal, or for the person praying hard for a spouse that's far from the Lord or not even a Christian at all. The only challenge I can give you is from God's Word, and that is to not quit. Keep sowing the seed. Keep being faithful. Don't stop praying. Trust that God is bigger and more powerful than you and I will ever be. He's far outside of our strategies, far exceeds any of our systems and programs. And I suspect his love for that person that you love is far greater than you'll ever imagine. Keep on, keep sowing, keep trusting, keep being faithful. And in due season, you'll reap a harvest, the Bible says, if you don't quit Just don't quit. The only way that I could see that we could fail is if we quit. So don't quit. Be faithful to Him. Father, I pray that you would take these words, stir our hearts, as to say, our, our seat of reason and emotion, of obedience. And Father, move us to action, I pray. And Father, if there is someone in this room who doesn't have any of these relationships with you, to them, these things seem foreign. Father, I pray that they would hear this today. This life is hard, and it may not get easier, but we were not intended to live this life apart from your grace. We were never made for that. We were never made to be independent of you. And we need you not just because we might die tomorrow and face the judgment of your throne and eternity of heaven or hell. We need you because we might live another day. And Father, I pray that today someone would say, Father, God, I need you. I want to experience you forever. I want the reward of eternity. I I want to spend forever with you. And Father, I want you in my life right now. I, I surrender to you the futility of living my life like I'm the king. I want to be in in your kingdom, your army. I'm, I'm tired of running this race of life like this and just losing, 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 and now realizing that one day I'm going to stand before you in judgment because I don't know you, because I'm sinful before you. I'm going to lose for eternity. I don't, Father, forgive me, save me. Or maybe you're just tired of the results of your life, the stuff you've been sowing and the harvest you've been getting. You say, I don't want to live like this anymore. And I sure don't want to stand before God one day and give an account of everything I have ever said or done or lived and 
receive the fruit of all that, the harvest of all that. Father, forgive me. Forgive me. Give me a new life. Give me a new beginning. May I begin to sow new seed today that I can enjoy in eternity. So, Father, I pray you would draw someone to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.